Okay, Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 16 tonight, and uh, we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is a long uh, discourse that Jesus gives uh, preparing his disciples as he's sending them out two by two to go on a uh, temporary, a short-term missions trip, basically, where they're going out and preaching, and then they're going to come back and report to him and he's using this to train them. So he started um, in verse 5 to give them instructions for how they are to conduct themselves during this time. Okay? And then this continues. But what he's telling them isn't just applicable for this one trip, but it's applicable for them for the rest of their lives. And it's also applicable for us, we who are his disciples. So, okay, Matthew chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 16 says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word and that you've given it to us, Lord, to equip us, Lord, with every good thing that we need, Lord, in order to have life and godliness. Lord, it is your divine power who has granted to us all of these things uh, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that these words of Christ would resonate in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would believe them, Lord, receive them. Lord, help us to see and understand that you have called us, Lord, to be faithful to you and that in this present life we will have our persecutions and our sufferings. Uh, there will be trouble in this world. And yet, Lord, you will protect us. You will watch over us. Lord, you will not let us uh, be destroyed even by our enemies. But Lord, we pray that we would not be caught off guard, Lord, or think that it's something strange and odd whenever we face suffering, even when it comes uh, from our family or those who are our friends. Uh, but Lord, rather help us to see that this is a common part of the Christian life. This is what our Lord and Savior experience and what we should experience as well. So Lord, teach us to bear up under our sufferings. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to overcome them, to endure, and Lord, to be faithful to you to the very end. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so here he is preparing his disciples uh, for the ministry that they're going to undertake uh, and also preparing all of us as his disciples to live in this present world because this present world belongs to the devil, right? He is the ruler of this world. He is uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he is called the God of this world or the ruler of this world. Not that he has... Uh, control outside of or over and above God. God is certainly sovereign over him, but in terms of influence and in terms of uh, the way that people live and behave, they are slaves to the devil, right? Slaves to the devil through sin and through temptation, and he exercises this control over them. Well, the believer, the disciple, has been bought by Christ and brought out of the world and now he is in the kingdom of light. He no longer belongs to this kingdom of darkness. So there is this dichotomy that takes place in this present world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the sons of light live alongside the sons of darkness in this present world. And when that happens, there is going to be friction. There is going to be uh, issues that arise because the sons of light want to live a righteous life. They want to do the will of God. They want to speak the word of God. They want to do those things that are true and right and good in the sight of God. And those who love darkness rather than light will gnash their teeth at this. They hate this. And so there's going to be friction. There's going to be tension. There's going to be uh, enmity and strife, right, between these two. And this shouldn't surprise us if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, there it was prophesied at the very beginning that there would be enmity and strife between the seed of the serpent, his children, and the seed of the woman, who is ultimately Christ, but then also his children, the, his brothers, those who belong to Christ. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there will be enmity, war, strife, conflict between the seed of the serpent, his children, those who belong to him, and the seed of God, the seed of the woman who is our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and then those who belong to him, right? His body. There will be conflict between these two. And Jesus is preparing his disciples to deal with this, right? To, to know what is coming, right? To be aware, to be alert. Don't think that it's going to be a bed of roses and that it's going to be easy and that everyone's going to love you and accept you and applaud you and praise you for preaching the word of God to them. This is not going to be the case at all, but rather there's going to be enmity. There's going to be strife. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be sufferings. There's going to be hardships, right? These things are going to happen and we need to be aware of this beforehand so that when it comes upon us, we're not caught off guard. We're not surprised. This is why, for example, in the military, they put the soldiers, right? They, they, are, they should at least, put them through grueling training, right? That exposed them to harsh circumstances, to difficulty, so that when they go into battle, they're not caught off guard. They're ready, they're prepared to deal with those circumstances that they're gonna face whenever they go to the battlefield. This is why they need to be trained in this way. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's training them, preparing them for the hard road that is ahead because it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult and they need to know that beforehand so that when the going gets tough, they don't wash out and they don't give up and they don't turn away and abandon the faith, but they will endure. And part of the benefit of this is it, whenever we know beforehand that something is on the horizon, then we can gird up our loins, we can be prepared, we can get our mind prepared for action and set our face like flint toward the kingdom of God and then just endure and press through it. So that's the benefit of this passage is it is warning us of what is going to come. And we need to be prepared. And this will happen to all of his disciples. Everyone, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Everyone, everyone who lives a godly life will, to some measure, suffer persecution. Now, we may not all be drugged before kings and governors like they experience, but we will receive some rejection, some sufferings, some hardships in this present life. Whether that be physical suffering where people are trying to put us to death or beat us, or whether that be rejection, mocking, ridicule, you know, those types of things will happen as well, and we must be ready for that. And we cannot shrink back from Christ, and we cannot shrink back from his word and just say, well, I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm not going to say anything because I'll just keep my mouth shut. That way I can keep the peace. We can't do that. We have to be truthful and honest and speak up and say that this is what the word of God says, even if it means rejection and even if it means that our family rejects us, right, which is what he talks about here as well. Okay, so this is what he's preparing them for. And it's good for us because this is what we will experience as well. So we have to be ready. We have to be prepared and remember that we are soldiers of Christ and we are called to wage war. We are called to the battlefield. This is what we have to do. We have to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is from our conversion to the end of our life. We are in the midst of our battle. There is a day of rest coming but that is in the life to come. Now is the time for us to fight and to wage war and to work for the kingdom of God. And then we will rest in the life to come. So we have to be ready and gird up our loins and do the will of God. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 16. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents 
and innocent as doves. Here he's telling them, you are like sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is how dangerous, this is how precarious, this is how difficult it's going to be, right? We would say that's an impossible situation. How can sheep, right, endure? How can they survive when they're being sent out into the midst of wolves, right? And the only way is if they're being protected by a higher power, if they're being protected by the hand of God. So he's telling them, you've got to trust God. You have to know that your life is entrusted into the hands of God and your situation, your circumstance is going to be like this. You are like sheep who are innocent, harmless, defenseless creatures, and you're going out into the midst of wolves. The wicked are like wolves who are savage, brutal, vicious animals that want to tear the sheep limb from limb. So you have to understand this and trust that God is going to protect you, that God will be with you, and that not a hair from your head will be hurt apart from the will of God. So entrust yourself to God. But also, because of this, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, right? Because you know what the situation is like, because you know what men are like, wicked men are like wolves, then you need to be wise. You need to be shrewd, calculated. You need to use cunning in a proper way, in a righteous way, so that you don't fall into their traps and into their plans. You need to be as shrewd as a serpent. Right? In this case, he's using the serpent in a positive way. The serpent can be used and is used in the Bible in a negative way because of its uh, deceitfulness, because of its trickery, such as the case in Genesis chapter 3. But here, the serpent is being commended to us because of its shrewdness, the way that it maneuvers in a hidden, secret way, and it uses shrewdness so as to not be trampled and to not be destroyed by creatures that are greater than it. And in the same way, he's saying you need to have shrewdness as well. Don't be naive. Don't be gullible people. But understand what men are, who men are, and understand how wicked they are, and then use shrewdness so that they don't capture, capture you unnecessarily. Okay? So you need to act accordingly to the situation. But not only be as shrewd as serpents, but also innocent as doves. When he says be shrewd, he doesn't mean sinful. He doesn't mean sinfully shrewd, deceitfully shrewd. He means shrewd, but also with innocence, with purity, with righteousness. So wisdom or shrewdness, cunning, with righteousness. This is the way that we are to behave. We are to be innocent in the way that we conduct ourselves even though the wicked will be very malicious, very evil, we can't respond in like. We have to be innocent and pure just as our heavenly father is holy and pure, so we must be as well. Now, a couple of examples of righteous men behaving shrewdly, behaving shrewdly, and when they're doing this, it's not <coughs> presented as a negative, but it's presented as a positive, okay? The first one is Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Nehemiah 6, we remember that Nehemiah, when he came to rebuild the wall, 
in Jerusalem, not everyone was happy about this. Those who had taken over the land, they didn't like it at all. And they were discouraging him and trying to thwart his plans. And then they were also lying to him, trying to trap him so that they could smear his name or even put him to death. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. says, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Chepharim, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Are you to be their king, according to these reports? You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him, saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalat, according to these works of theirs, and also uh, Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So here, when these men sent messages to Nehemiah, saying, let's take counsel together. We just want to meet with you. We just want to meet, have a peaceful meeting with you, talk about what's going on. We could all work together. He knows that they're up to no good. He doesn't trust them. So he's exercising shrewdness. He's being a cunning person, and he knows what kind of men that they are, and he's not going to walk into their trap, right? Even when they invite him, and even when they threaten him, and even when they hire these false prophets to come and tell him to do these things. He's aware, he's using his mind, Right? He's using his shrewdness so to see through their traps and their lies and not get caught up in this. And this is because he's not a gullible man. He's not a naive man. He's not a simpleton. He's a wise man who understands the nature of men. He knows what these men are like. And this is why he does not trust them and does not fall into their traps. Another example, 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel 19, sorry, verses 1 to 7. First Samuel 19, verse 1. 
It says, Now Saul told Jonathan the son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hands and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. So here, Jonathan and David use this strategy in order to determine and find out whether Saul is going to be favorable toward him or whether Saul is going to kill him. David doesn't just blindly walk into his presence because he knows that he's not right in the head, right? And he doesn't trust this man. So Jonathan and David together, and Jonathan being the primary actor here, is the one using shrewdness in order to find out and determine what the temperament of his father is for the sake of David. And this is what they do. And then they do it again in chapter 20, right? Whenever he... Uh, tells David not to come, and then he inquires with his father, and then his father is outraged and enraged and even tries to put Jonathan to death uh, because of that. So in this way, they're using shrewdness. They're being cunning in the way that they're behaving so that they can find out and determine what's going on so that their lives are not unnecessarily put in jeopardy. Why should David die needlessly, right? It's not, it's not necessary for him to die. Why should he die needlessly in this way. And so they're using this type of shrewdness to determine. But are they sinning? Did Nehemiah sin by saying, I'm not going to come to you? Did David and Jonathan sin by saying, let's find out and see what your father's thinking before we bring? Those aren't sins, right? They are innocent in the way that they're conducting themselves. They're doing it in an upright way, even though they're still using shrewdness. Okay, chapter 10, verse 17 says, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Here, he warns them specifically, right? He's already told them they're going in the midst of wolves, but here it is men. Men are the problem. Beware of men. Beware of sinful men. Beware of wicked men. Beware of false men, of false prophets. Beware of these people. Don't trust them, right? Because they are going to do evil things to you. This is the way that they're going to behave. And they're even going to hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Right? Both of these places, a court and a synagogue, should be places where an innocent, righteous man is welcomed. He should have no fear of going to court because he's not done any evil. He's not committed any crime. Why would he be afraid to go to court? He should have no fear of court, yet here they're going to be drugged into the courts, treated like criminals, treated as if they are some threat to society. In synagogues, aren't synagogues supposed to be places of worship where people of God meet to study the word of God? And yet what's going to happen here in these synagogues? They're going to scourge you there. They're going to beat you. 
They're going to whip you in their synagogues. So that tells you what the synagogues were like during the days of Christ and during the days of his disciples. They claimed to be the children of God. They claimed to be the descendants of Abraham. They claimed to follow Moses and the law, but they really did not. They actually hated God. They hated Moses. They hated Abraham. And they hated those who were like them, who are the disciples. They should be welcomed with open arms in the synagogues. And instead, they're going to be scourged there. This is how wicked the people will be. They're going to use the authority granted to them by God, whether that be the civil authority in the courts or whether that be the religious authority in the synagogue, they're going to use their position and authority to persecute Christ and his church, the true people of God. Revelation chapter 2. This would be the same as Revelation chapter 2 verse 9. Revelation 2.9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These people who claim to be Jews, and by taking the name Jew or Israelite, they are claiming to belong to God. They're claiming to be a child of God, but he says they're really not. They are outwardly, but they're not inwardly. They're not spiritually. Spiritually, who do they belong to? They belong to Satan. And their synagogue is not a synagogue of God, but rather it is a synagogue of Satan. Well, the same can be true today. The church can be a church of Satan, a church that belongs to Satan. And there are many such churches today. Why would we think that this wouldn't be the case? When the synagogues would be the equivalent to the churches. This is the places where people met to study the Bible, to worship God. And yet here, the synagogue is so corrupt, it's a synagogue of Satan. And in Matthew chapter 10, the synagogue is so corrupt that they're scourging and beating the disciples of Christ. So why would we think today that all of the churches are wonderful? The churches are all great. They all serve God. They all point people to Christ. They all love God. And everyone there is a true Christian and they're all going to make it to heaven. This isn't the case at all. A church can be a church of Satan, a, a meeting place. It meets under the name of God, under the name of Christ, because are the synagogues back in this day, are they declaring to everyone, we are a synagogue of Satan? Do they have the picture of a goat head up there, you know, and a, a, with all the paraphernalia of Satan worshipers. They're not doing that. They're claiming to be children of God. They're claiming to worship the true God, but not really. They're not doing it in truth and in right, but really they are of their father, the devil, and they're doing his will because they're persecuting Christ and his church. So beware of them, he says. Verse 18, And you will even be brought before governors and kings, for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. This is how bad it's going to be. You're going to even be drugged before governors and kings, as if, as if these Christians are the scourge of society, as if they are terrorists, or some great threat to the world and to society that is so dangerous that they have to be drugged before governors 
and kings? Like, who does that? Right? How evil do you have to be in order to be drugged before the king and have a hearing before him? And this is the way they're going to be. Who are we? We're nobodies. We're no names. Right? We are no one. We are like a dead dog and like a flea, as David said to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 14. He says, who are you chasing after? Right? Who am I? I'm, I'm a flea in your presence, yet you're treating me as if I'm this great threat and this great harm to your kingdom. When in reality, I don't want to harm your kingdom. I want to build up your kingdom. I'm here for your benefit. And this is the same way with the Christians, with the believer. They're not a threat. They're nothing but a dead dog. They're nothing but a flea in terms of their standing in this world. And do Christians want to undermine society? Do they want to topple society and overthrow all the laws and create anarchy and chaos and misery? No, they want to obey the laws insofar as the laws are good. They want to be good citizens. They want to be hard workers. They want to raise their families and have children that are respectful and who uh, grow up and become hardworking citizens. This is what they want to do. So why are they such a danger that they must be drugged before governors and kings? What is the great evil that they are committing. And what is it? Preaching the truth of Christ. That's the evil. That is why people do this. They behave in irrational, satanic ways toward the Christians, even dragging them in this way because they are so incensed, so furious, they have such hatred and rage toward Christ and his people that they'll stop at no ends in order to shut them up and in order to have them executed and put to death, even bringing them before governors and kings. This we, re we remember from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 46. There, the prophet David says, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I'm going to speak your testimonies before kings. And when I do, I'm not going to be ashamed because I got nothing to be ashamed of because your testimonies are good and righteous and true. And even in the presence of a king who in terms of position and rank far exceeds me, right? He is uh, the head of the kingdom, yet he's not greater than God. And he needs to know the testimonies of God. He needs to know what God says about the matter. And I'm going to tell him what God says about the matter. And I'm not going to be ashamed when I do that. There are many such examples of this throughout the Bible, such as Moses before Pharaoh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of them were before kings. And here, even the disciples of Christ. If we go to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 in verse 15, they were constantly being brought before rulers, authorities, whether that be the Jewish authorities, the Gentile authorities, they were brought before all of them. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is speaking of the apostle Paul. It says, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer 
for my name's sake. So there, the Apostle Paul was chosen by God to bear the name of Christ before the Gentiles and before their kings and before the Jews. He was going to proclaim it to everyone and he was going to have to suffer a lot. God was going to show him how much he was going to have to suffer for the name of Christ. Notice that. He doesn't say, I'm going to show him how many converts he's going to have for my name. I'm going to show him how much popularity he's going to have for my name. How many people he's going to reach for my name. What is he saying to him? How much he's going to suffer for my name. This is what God revealed to him. Isn't that what Jesus is telling the disciples in Matthew chapter 10? This is how much you must suffer for my name. Also, Acts chapter 26. Acts 26, verses 1 and 2. This is King Agrippa. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. And then also chapter 26, verses 30 to 32. It says, The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So there, Paul fulfills this passage, right? He speaks before King Agrippa, Festus, Bernice, these other dignitaries that were there. They were all gathered there, and he got up and made his defense, and he told them the word of God. He proclaimed to them the ordinances, the testimonies of God, and he was not ashamed of it. They were ashamed. They actually said, you got to go get, get this guy out of here, right? Are you out of your mind is what they said, but he said, I'm not out of my mind. I've got a same mind. Right? This is the way I am. And then even the apostle went before Caesar, to whom he had appealed. And this was so that they might be a testimony to the Gentiles and to kings of the word of Christ, of the authority of Christ, of the day of judgment, that they may be kings on earth, but there is a king that is above all other kings, and he is the one that they must all submit to. They must submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Here, the thought of having to stand before a king, before governors, to be in a court, to be surrounded by these people, to have to answer in front of them publicly, right? That would cause a lot of fear and trepidation uh, in, in many people. What am I going to say, right? Am I going to fail? Am I going to speak up? Am I going to be clear? What am I going to do in that situation? Will I wilt under the pressure, right? How am I going to, to handle this situation? So Jesus is here calming their fears. Don't worry, he says. Don't fear and do not worry about what you are going to say. Because when that time comes, your father will give you the words, right? He will give you the words. It will be given to you in that hour what it is that you are to say. The spirit of God will be with you and you will not be alone. 
you may be standing alone in terms of you don't have any other men with you, but you're not alone in terms that God has not abandoned you or forsaken you. God is with you. His spirit is with you and his spirit will give you the words to say at that hour. He will call those things to your mind. He will give you the wisdom of God so that you will be able to make a bold declaration concerning the person and work of Christ and you will be able to answer your enemies and even silence them. You will be able to speak before kings and you will not be ashamed. Even when you're standing before these men of renown, men of influence, men of power, who are all dressed in their regal attire, right? In the, the, this way that would invoke fear in the minds of men, but it's not going to bring fear to the disciples because they know that they're innocent. They've done nothing wrong. And they know that they are representatives of God and what they say is true and right and that these men have to answer to God. So he tells them, do not fear. Don't worry about what you're going to say because your father will be with you. The spirit will be with you and he will give you the words to say in that very hour. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can just sit back, relax, and we don't, we don't have to read the Bible. We don't need to study the Bible. We don't need to memorize the Bible. Of course, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to set it to our mind. We need to have it in our heart so that when that hour comes, the Spirit has the Word of God within us that He can bring to our mind during that time. So it, He's not saying it doesn't matter. You, you don't need to think or you don't need to study or you don't need to know the Bible. Of course, they need to know the Bible. But when that time comes, the Spirit will call to your mind those passages, those verses, those references concerning the issue at hand. And you will be able to answer them with the Spirit of God. He will help you and give you the strength that you need during that time. Okay, a couple of examples. First, Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. This is what God told Moses. Because Moses was fearful. He was hesitant about going before Pharaoh. Exodus 4, verse 10. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you are to say. So there, when Moses is hesitant about going because he's not a good speaker, he's not an eloquent speaker, he's slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord tells him, I made your tongue. I made the tongues of all men. I'm the one who gives men the ability to speak, to see, to hear, right? This all comes from me and I will be with you and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to say. So don't be afraid to go before Pharaoh, and don't be afraid because you're not a good speaker, because I will give you the words to say, and you will know exactly what to say at the right time to answer Pharaoh. And this is what Christ is telling his disciples as well. And this is what will be true for us. Jeremiah also, in Jeremiah chapter 1, 
Jeremiah 1, verses 4 to 10. Jeremiah 1, verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. In all, the command, in all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So here also the prophet Jeremiah is hesitant, right? Because he doesn't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I'm a young man. No one's going to listen to me. I don't know how to speak and they're not going to listen to me because I'm only a youth. But he says, don't say that. Don't say that. And do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, but wherever you go, you're going to speak my words and you're going to declare it to them. And then God touched his mouth and put his words in his mouth. And then that's what he was going to say. This is the same as Matthew chapter 10. God's word will be in our mouth and God will give us the words to say whenever it needs to be said. Verse 21. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Here he tells them, Brother will be against brother, father against child, child against parents. Even here, he says, brother will betray brother to death. Put them to death. A father will betray his child to death. A child will betray his parents to death. So he's, he's not joking around when he says that this is the way it's going to be. He wants us to see how serious this is how difficult and how dangerous, how treacherous the path is. Even those people that we normally depend upon, even those that we have natural affection and natural relationship with, even they will turn against us if one of them is an unbeliever and we are a believer. If we are righteous and they are wicked, even they will turn against us because of their hatred for Christ and their hatred for his word, and even our natural affinity and our natural relationship and the natural love that a brother has for his brother or a father to a child or a child to their parents, even that will not be able to overcome their hatred for Christ and their hatred for his word. That's the ultimate issue. The wicked hate God. They hate Christ. They hate the word of God. They hate whatever is true and good and righteous. And even Though we are their family, if we hold to those things, then their hatred will turn against us, even to the point, in some cases, where they might put us to death. So he's saying, don't be surprised 
when it happens. Don't be surprised when your father turns against you. Don't be surprised when your siblings turn against you. Don't be surprised when your children turn against you because of the word of God, because you're trying to take the Bible seriously and because you're trying to practice it and do what it says. Don't be shocked when even your family will rise up against you and even your friends, those people that you are friends with in the past, that they will turn against you and they will want nothing to do with you anymore. We shouldn't be surprised when this happens because Jesus is telling us this is exactly the way that it is going to be. Even natural relationships where there should be love and affection will turn into hatred because of Christ, because of Christ and his word. Proverbs 29, 27. Proverbs 29, 27. Twenty-nine, twenty-seven. An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. Right? There it is. An unjust man, a wicked man, is an abomination to a righteous man. He detests it. He loathes it, the wicked man. But the upright man, the righteous man, he is detestable to the wicked man because there's no common ground between them. These two are at odds, right? They are on opposite sides. One is with God and the other one is with the devil. These are enemies, right? They are against each other. One is light, the other is darkness. One is heat, the other is cold, right? They are opposites and where one is, the other cannot be. And there will be enmity and strife, detestation between the one and the other. Also, Isaiah 66 Isaiah 66, verse 5. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. There, these are the ones who tremble at the word of God. Those who love the word of God. Now, is that commendable? Is that a good thing or a bad thing to tremble at the word of God? Well, according to verse 2 of 66, this is the one that God looks to. God delights in this person. God looks to the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at the word of God. So trembling at the word of God is a good thing. This is a virtue. This is something that should be commendable in the sight of men. But here, their brothers hate them. They exclude them for the name of Christ because of the name of the Lord. And then they mock them and say, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. They are the ones who will be put to shame. This is like them saying to Jesus on the cross, come down from the cross that we could we believe in you, right? That we'll see your glory. They will believe in you if you'll come down from the cross. He saved others. He can't save himself is what they said about Christ. Well, this is what they're doing here. And it's their brothers, their brothers, Right, whether that be their family brothers or their national brothers, their kin, right, their kinsmen, they're the ones mocking them and ridiculing them in in this way. Now, a couple of examples of this. First, Genesis chapter four. 
brother against brother. We don't have to go very far in the Bible to see this truth manifested. The first event recorded outside of the Garden of Eden is brother rising up against brother. Wicked brother rising up against righteous brother and killing him, putting him to death. And we know because of 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, why did Cain slay his brother Abel? Because he was wicked and Abel was righteous. This is why he did it. Not because Abel cheated him, stole from him, uh, you know, uh, uh, kicked his dog, whatever it is that people might get upset about. None of those reasons, but because he was righteous and Cain was a wicked man. Genesis 4 verses 1 to 8. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So there he killed his brother. Brother against brother because one was righteous and the other was wicked and why can this not happen to us as well of course it can of course it can also genesis chapter 9 what about child against parent genesis chapter 9 now in this case he doesn't kill him but he does commit sin against him and we know that Ham was a wicked man and Noah was a righteous man. And this is why he did it. Genesis 9, verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his younger youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So there, him, who was wicked, receives a curse from his father because of what he did to Noah. Right? He, Noah, it says that Noah knew what his youngest son had done to him, this sin that he committed against him. So here, enmity within the home between a child and between the parent, the child being wicked and the parent being righteous. Okay, then how about father against son? Right, This is child against father, son against father. Then how about father against son? 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 20. We have an example of a father throwing a spear at his son, which is not a very loving thing to do. 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. 
1 Samuel 20, 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Actually, he should have said, You son of a perverse and rebellious father. Of a, because who is the perverse, rebellious person here? Saul, right? Saul, that would have been truthful, but he puts it on the woman. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the noon moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So there Saul is so incensed and outraged at Jonathan. And Jonathan is behaving righteously. Jonathan has humility. He must decrease and David must increase. This is what Jonathan knows. He knows that David is a type of Christ and that it is through David's line that the Christ will come. And this is why Jonathan is willing, though he is the one who should naturally be the next king, he is willing for David to take his place. He is willing for David to be king because he's looking beyond David to Christ. And that's where his hope is. And he loves David and he loves Christ. And he's defending David, right? Why are you doing this? And what has he done to you that you want to put him to death? And you're behaving in this way. And then he throws a spear at him and tries to kill him. And then Jonathan rose in fierce anger. That's like we read on Sunday, right? Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. This is like Jesus turning over the tables or like Moses going out in Exodus chapter 11 in hot anger from the presence of Pharaoh. This is righteous anger that Jonathan has against his father because of what he's doing. So here in the home, father and son, where typically there's warm, affectionate relationship, you have the father trying to kill the son because of faith in Christ, because of Christ and for the sake of righteousness. This is the way it's going to be. So you have all of this played out in the Bible in many different ways and in many different scenarios. So brother against brother, father against child, child against parents will cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You will be hated by all. Right? Not all universally, not all the believers, but all the unbelievers, all the wicked. The believers will love you. This is what we'll study this upcoming Sunday from Psalm 119. I'm a companion of those who fear you. Right? Those are our companions. They will love you, but the unbelievers, the wicked, they will hate you. They're going to hate you in one regard or another because of Christ. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. We must overcome the persecution. We must endure through it. When these things start happening to us, the temptation is for us to give up, for us to say, it's too hard, it's too difficult. I, I didn't know that it was going to be like this. Well, one, 
we shouldn't say, I didn't know, because Jesus is telling us the way it's going to be. So we have no excuse. It's right here in the Bible. So we can't say we didn't know. We can't say this isn't fair. This isn't right. What's going on? No, we have to know that this is going to happen. And then when it happens to us, we just have to overcome it. We have to endure it. We have to persevere. And we can't say, well, I'm going to keep silent. And I'm not going to say anything. And I'm going to deny Christ just so I can keep peace in the home. Just so I can make my family happy. Just so I don't have to face persecution. Then I'm just not going to say what the Bible says. No, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have to just say what the Bible says, even if it leads to persecution. And we have to overcome. We have to endure and overcome. And we cannot turn back and shrink back whenever it gets tough and difficult. And even when there's strain and tension in our homes, in our families, between a husband and a wife, between a father and a child, between a brother and a brother, we just have to persevere and endure and do the will of God. It is by your endurance that you will gain your life. Jesus says in Luke 21, 19, by your endurance. It is not faith that is meager faith, right? That is weak faith, that is spurious faith. That is not the faith that saves. True faith is manifested through perseverance. Persevering faith, enduring faith. This is the true faith that saves and that leads to salvation. But if we turn away, right? If we fall away whenever persecution arises because of the word of Christ, then we manifest and prove that we do not have true faith. We have no root to us and we do not produce any good fruit. This would be like Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the seed that was sown among, amongst uh, the rocks, the rocky ground. It sprung up, but it did not produce fruit because when persecutions come on account of the word, they fall away. They fall away. They say, I didn't sign up for this. This is too hard. It's too difficult. And I'm going to walk away from the faith. We can't do that. We have to overcome and we have to endure the testing, right? And what is the victory that will give us the ability to overcome? It is faith. It is our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. First John chapter 5, verse 4. It is faith in the word of Christ that gives us the ability to overcome the hardship, the suffering, the persecution, whatever it is that we face in this present world. Okay, then verse uh, 23. He says, Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Here, having faith, being steadfast and movable, doesn't mean being stupid, okay? If somebody is trying to kill you and you know about it, then what is the logical thing to do? Get away from them, run away, run as fast as you can. So if they start persecuting you in one town, don't say, well, I'm going to have a stiff upper lip and I'm going to suffer for the Lord here and I'm just going to show how much I'm devoted to God. If you have the ability to get away from them, then get away from them, run away, flee, get away as fast as you can. There's no point in dying needlessly, right? We should not unnecessarily be a martyr for Christ. Now, if we're called to that and if it's unavoidable, then we just have to endure it. But if we can avoid persecution and suffering by not sinning, then that's okay. 
And is it a sin to run? No, it's not a sin whenever someone picks up a, a rock to throw it at you to duck and to run and get away from them. Or if they point a gun at you to be nimble and quick, right? And hop around the corner or whatever it takes, right? To get out of there so that you don't die, right? Or to go into a place, right? Why would you walk into the middle of a mosque and say, you people all worship the devil, right? Why would you put yourself in that situation unnecessarily? unless the Spirit of God tells you explicitly to go do that. So we should not put ourselves in these situations, right, where it's unnecessary for us to suffer in that way and to be persecuted in that way. So if we can flee, then he says, flee, get away from them. And didn't even Jesus do this? He did it. His parents did it. They forced him to do it, but they are commended for doing it in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 Joseph and Mary, they fled in the middle of the night to get away from Herod and what he was about to do. And they were told to do this by an angel from God. Chapter 2, 13. Now when they, had, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. While it was still night. He was told in the night and immediately they got up and they fled. They got out of there because of what was about to happen. So that they wouldn't die. So that the child wouldn't die. They fled to Egypt. Also another example. This isn't fleeing, but this is using the government for your benefit to avoid getting beat. Acts chapter 22. Acts 22 verse 24. Now I say this because many times people want to romanticize or glamorize suffering and persecution, right? But the Bible doesn't treat it in this way. The Bible tells us that it is going to happen and some of it is inevitable and, is, and when it does, then we just have to bear it and pray that God would give us the strength. But if we can avoid it, then we should avoid it and use whatever lawful means are available to us to avoid it, right? To avoid it. So for example, in our country, if we have the right to bear arms, which we do, and to have a gun and someone breaks into my house to put me and my family to death because we're Christians, well, shoot the guy. Right? Why should we die and this evil person be allowed to live when we have the right before the law and before God to put him to death? Right? That's what we should do. Why should we die and this evil person live? Of course not. Acts chapter 22, verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born as a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. 
And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So there, Paul uses his citizenship as a Roman to get out of a beating, right? Who wants to get beat unnecessarily? It's not necessary. He says, this isn't right. I didn't do anything wrong. And you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the authority to beat me because I'm a Roman and I have protection as a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire. And you can't beat me because I am an uncondemned man. And then when they find out that he's a Roman, what do they do? They stop. They stop and they're afraid and they let him go, right? Because they don't want to get in trouble. So he's using the law. He's using the laws of the land. He's using his citizenship in order to avoid an unnecessary beating. Now, sometimes it's unavoidable, such as when the mob falls on him and then he just has to take it. But in this case, he was able to avoid it by appealing to his citizenship. And there's nothing wrong with this either. Whether it be fleeing, whether it be using the law, using whatever God gives before us, whatever we can use to avoid suffering unnecessarily, to avoid persecution from evil men unnecessarily, then we should take advantage of those things and use them in whatever capacity that we can. And then he says, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, this last part, there is some uh, difficulty and different interpretations as to exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says that you're, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Uh, some take that to be until the resurrection, that they won't finish going through all the cities uh, until after the resurrection of Christ, after he's revealed uh, in his glory, the resurrection being that which reveals the glory of Christ or manifests it publicly in the world, uh, the resurrection that he was proven to be the son of God by his resurrection of the dead. Others will take that to be the pouring out of the spirit on the day of Pentecost, the son of man coming in his glory in that way. Others take it to be the destruction of Jerusalem, that whenever the sufferings he's talking about here are specific to, though they will be true to, amongst the Gentiles in the world, he's sending them out now to the lost sheep of the house of Israel but they won't finish going into all the villages and cities in Israel before he comes and destroys Jerusalem uh, in that way. Uh, so those are the ways that people uh, take it. I probably would prefer the first one, which would be the resurrection. Uh, but all three of those things are certainly events. They all are events that happen. They don't contradict one another. Uh, and uh, all of them in one way or another do reveal the glory of Christ the Son of Man coming in His power uh, in that way. So, okay, I think we'll stop there for tonight. And we can um, have uh, any questions or comments on the Bible study tonight. I know we didn't cover a whole lot, but there's a lot to say in these passages. And very necessary because um, in the churches in America, the churches are, for the most part, unscathed because the churches are just like the world. Uh, that's the problem. And um, so we, we often think, well, so persecution is something that happens in Muslim countries, which it certainly does there, or uh, in communist countries. But it's not going to happen in America because America is a Christian, a Christian nation, a Christian country. 
And certainly it may not happen to the same intensity and degree that it might in a Muslim country because of the influence with the laws. Uh, however, if we're believing the true gospel and preaching the word of God faithfully and living consistently, then even here there will be some measure of persecution that we'll face. So. Okay, any questions or comments?